Generation Church Podcast. We hope you find this encouraging. Come visit us in South Oceanside. This reading is from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. They stood there, amazed and perplexed. What can this mean, they asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the 11 other apostles and shouted to the crowd, listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and clouds of smoke, the sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before that great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. People of Israel, listen. God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. But God knew what would happen, and his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to the cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him, I see that the Lord is always with me. I will not be shaken, for he is right beside me. No wonder my heart is glad and my tongue shouts his praises. My body rests in hope. For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You have shown me the way of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this. You can be sure that the patriarch David wasn't referring to himself, for he died and was buried, and his tomb is still here among us. But he was a prophet, and he knew God had promised with an oath that one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies. Make them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Each of you must repent of your sins 
and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. All who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. For those who believed what Peter said were baptized and and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, I gave you a short one, right? <laughs> it's like, thanks a lot. Uh, you know this one, f- fill in the blanks, right? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is that true? Uh, man, I remember, you may not know this about me, but if you really knew me, you'd know uh, that I grew up and I really struggled with my weight. And uh, I, I will never forget being made fun of, uh, being called, there's that fat kid. And just the things that people would whisper and say, it was brutal, brutal. I was one of those kids that when I'd go to swim parties, I'd wear a t-shirt because I was just embarrassed about the way that I looked. I wasn't just embarrassed. I hated, I hated myself for the way that I looked. I really struggled with that. It left, it left a mark on me, and the words left a mark on me. Um, Later in life, not even that, uh, re- that long ago, I was leading a Bible study for some high school students, and uh, one of the students got into trouble at school. They had, like, snuck alcohol onto a, onto a party bus to go to a dance, you know, like, um, and so the parents were embarrassed because the kids got in trouble, and I got a call from one of the parents, and his dad calls me up, and he basically lays into me. He's like, where were you for my son? You know, you're supposed to be leading this Bible study and doing all these things. And like, you just, you weren't there for us in our time. of need. Just rip me apart. Like, you weren't there for us in our time of need. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> like, uh, and I knew, I knew what was happening in that moment. This guy didn't know how to deal with his own failures as a parent. So he was trying to dump it all on me. Because uh, this kid didn't want really, this is the type of kid that when you tried to talk to him, he really was like, yeah, yeah, I'm just here because my parents are making me. Right? You never been in one of those groups? But, uh, but man, even though I knew it was bogus, oh, that hurt. I remember I hung up the phone. I said, all right, you know, well, sir, I, you know, I, I apologize. I'm sure there's more I could have done. But, but I hung that phone up. I remember just crying in my car, just thinking, I know that's a lie, but, oh, gosh, that hurts. You know, and I started to carry resentment about things like that. Uh, Sticks and Stones song, this is a lie. Uh, It's really tragic that kids still sing it because it's a lie. Uh, Words can create terrible hurt. Um, In fact, our bodies heal from brokenness and wounds. But the wounds that we carry in our souls from words will last a lifetime. I mean, I'm sure in this room, even as I say this, you're thinking of memories of words that were spoken over your life that created pain that you still hold on to today. Maybe you've even agreed with, and in that agreement power, it's still having an effect on you. Uh, See, words have the power to destroy, yet words also have the power to bring life and to heal. That's the beauty of this text here. Um, If you know the story of Scripture at all, or even if you don't, the story starts with God actually speaking things 
into existence. It's the power of his word that created us. Or scientists would say a big bang, but how, what banged it? Well, God started it. Boom. He spoke it. And then John goes even further in John's gospel and said actually that the word of God made manifest and dwelt with us. That actually Jesus is the word of God that's come to make the case that words bring life. And he's come to bring a better word, to speak a better word, to replace the words of woundings that's been spoken over us and to speak a better word of life into us and and through us. Words that say, hey, you're accepted. Words that say you're loved, that you're secure, that you're redeemed. And the words of Jesus bring life, and they begin to replace those words of, of death and wounds. Because the gospel is news. It's news to be shared. It's words to be proclaimed. It's news to be told, to be shared, to be celebrated. Those are gospel words. And actually, this is how Acts, the book, starts off. It starts off with Jesus giving his disciples a commission. Hey, wait in Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and he's going to fill you and he's going to make you my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and you will tell people about me everywhere. That's how this whole, that's the the mission statement of the entire book of Acts is just that verse, that you're going to go tell people these words, these gospel words, because they're powerful words. And as wild as this is, that work is still continuing. That God, and this is so mysterious to me, but he continues to use very normal and broken people like me and you to be his mouthpieces. Isn't that crazy? And actually, he promises us, you will be my vessels. It's not just a maybe or a might. It's you will, when you use gospel words, be a vessel of his saving grace. Paul talks about this dynamic in in Romans in chapter 10. He says it this way. He says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him unless uh, to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. In verse 17, so faith comes by hearing, that is, hearing the good news about Christ, these words of life. Now, in the verses that Sam just read, Peter is doing this exact thing. He is, and his beautiful feet, are sharing the message of good news with this crowd that's assembled. And so what are the words that he's sharing? That's what we're going to look into today, is what are these gospel words that he uses? What are gospel words and what do they do? And they do three things. One, they bring clarity out of confusion. Two, they point to Jesus. And three, they call for a response. So let's look at the first one. Gospel words bring clarity out of confusion. And if you want to follow along with me, uh, we've got Bibles in our chairs, and we're going to be on page 906, starting about halfway down. Highly recommend you follow along in in those verses, page 906. But the first observation is that gospel words bring clarity out of confusion. So if you weren't with us the last time we were looking at Acts, the confusion is that the Holy Spirit comes, fills all these people, They go out and they start speaking in languages that were formerly unknown to them. And so this crowd comes because they hear a roaring sound and they hear all this commotion. And they show up and the people are standing around. Some of them are saying, what does this mean? And other people are saying, oh, they were just drunk. That's the conclusion. That's where we left off last time. And Peter steps up and says, hold on. 
These people are not drunk. This is not drunk. This is Joel. This is not drunk. This is Joel. Peter starts to give the first public sermon, something similar to this in some ways, that's recorded in Scripture. He, and actually, in doing this, he's going to show us how to even read our Bibles because he's going to point to the Scriptures and teach from them and say, look, if you're confused, just look to the Scriptures for clarity. And this is what he says in verse 15. He says, these people are not drunk, as you're assuming. Nine in the morning is much too early for that. He has a good point. It's pretty dang early. Uh, unless, of course, you stayed up all night, but I don't count that because that means you had to. Anyway, so what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. It's such a great name, isn't it, Joel? I know, so much. He says, in the last days, verse 17, and he quotes Joel chapter 2. He says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. This is God speaking. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, women and men alike, and they will prophesy. Now, note what Peter says here. He, he says, this isn't what you will one day see, crowd, or that you might one day see. In verse 16, he says, no, what you see right now happening is Joel being fulfilled. They're not drunk. This is actually what the prophecies have been talking about for all of us here. Specifically, in verse 21, he says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The message here is salvation is available to all, just as we just read in Romans chapter 10. It's available to all. That's the invitation. And that means something because if you're with us last time, the people that are listening to all this are people from all over the region that had come into Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. So the confusion, wait, are these people drunk? What's happening? How is this possible? The confusion is answered in not drunk, Joel. Not drunk, but the Spirit is shown up. This is what's been fulfilled. The promise is actually being fulfilled. The promise of Ezekiel 36 that's mirrored in Joel chapter 2, that there were these glory days that were coming for Jerusalem. Jerusalem was in bad shape. They had been taken, dragged off into slavery. They had been persecuted. They had been, you name it. And the prophet Joel is saying by the voice of God, there are days coming when it won't be like this. When actually I'm going to come dwell in you. I'm going to be with you again. I'm going to rescue you. That the best is yet to come. And Peter's saying that time, those glory days are right now, guys. The crowds all watch. He says, this is happening right now and you're watching it. Now, some people, I hear this question a lot. They'll go, hey, do you, do you feel like we're in the end times? You know, you think this is, this is the end times? Well, the verse 17 says, in the last days, God will pour out his spirit. Has God poured out his spirit yet? Yeah, yeah that happened right there. This is 2,000 years ago. So as far as scripture is concerned, we've been in the last days for about 2,000 years. So the answer is yes, we're in the last days. Because <laughs> Peter's actually making a really good case. The last days started the second Christ rose from the dead and the spirit came. This is the last epoch of time. Christ could come at any moment. This is it. He's continuing his work to the ends of the earth. But that's not the main point of the text. The main point of the text is the way of salvation is here for everyone. This is it. This is the, the harvest is happening. There's nobody, no tribe, no tongue, no nation, no ethnicity, no amount of brokenness, no prison record, nothing that can stop anyone from coming into God's kingdom and being saved. Amen. Amen. And he says to them, don't look ahead to some future time. Look, this is today. 
This is the day of salvation. Verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a promise. These are the gospel words from Peter to them and also for us. There is no, any day is a day for salvation. Gospel words bring clarity out of confusion, and that's because of the observation number two, because gospel words point to Jesus. In verse 22, he continues, says, People of Israel, listen, God publicly endorsed Jesus the Nazarene by doing powerful miracles, wonders, and signs through him, as you well know. This was, obviously, this was common knowledge. There's this guy, Jesus, who's a teacher, and he's healing people, and he's powerful miracles and wonders. But, verse 23, God knew that would happen. And his prearranged plan was carried out when Jesus was betrayed. That wasn't accidental. With the help of lawless Gentiles, you nailed him to a cross and killed him. But God released him from the horrors of death and raised him back to life, for death could not keep him in its grip. King David said this about him. And then Peter quotes Psalm 16 here. And he says, For you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. This is David prophetically talking about the things Jesus would say to the Father later. It's crazy. Verse 28, you've shown me the way of life. You fill me with the joy of your presence. Dear brothers, think about this, Peter says. You can be sure that David wasn't referring to himself, for he died. He's buried. His body's still here in this tomb among us in Jerusalem. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised with an oath that one day one of David's own descendants would sit on his throne. David was looking into the future and speaking of the Messiah's resurrection. He was saying that God would not leave him among the dead or allow his body to rot in the grave. Verse 32, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the highest place of honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out on us, just as you see and hear today. And then he quotes Psalm 110. It says, so let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you have crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. So Jesus, I'm uh, sorry, Peter uses gospel words to bring clarity out of confusion. And then he also uses gospel words to point to Jesus. And how does he do this? Well, he doesn't wing it. You know, it's kind of like, what does he not do? Well, he doesn't start sharing personal testimonies like, well, you never believe this. You know, I was with Jesus and he felt, felt all these people. Or there, there's this one time and Jesus looked at me and in that moment I just knew, whoa, he sees me and he loves me. As cool as that is, that's not what he does here. What he does to point to Jesus, he points to the scriptures, the Old Testament Jewish literature, and says, he's been here all along. This promise has been here the whole time for redemption through one eternal king from the line of David. And he knows his context here. He, he nor I or any of us would be wise to say these things to people who weren't Jewish at this time. As we're going to see later, Paul speaks very differently to people who come from Gentile or Greek backgrounds who have no, no concept of what the Bible teaches. But here, Peter knows he's speaking to fellow Jews that are there to celebrate Pentecost. So he uses the insider language that they would know, quotes from their own scriptures. And he even refers to them, hey, brothers or people of Israel, Because the people that had come to Pentecost to celebrate in Jerusalem, which is the context of this scene, they had all come because they're they're Jewish. They're they're going there for the rituals, for the feasts, for the celebration, going to the temple. But many and most did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. They did not believe he was Lord. They had heard about him teaching, doing some miracles, but there was a lot of skepticism. What was about that? Some of them weren't even there for the crucifixion. They got there later, and they're hearing of this events of this guy who had died, and some people were saying he rose from the dead. There's that going on. 
And Peter steps up and starts addressing them. And what he's addressing specifically is this idea of resurrection. They did not believe, and if you're with us on Easter, you would have heard me say that Jews did not believe in the single resurrection of one person in the middle of time before everyone else. That was an idea that was crazy, or that a human being could be equal to God. That was blasphemy to them. So Peter's making a case from their own scriptures, no, it's not blasphemy. Actually, our own scriptures predict that this will happen. And so he peers into the Old Testament with a gospel lens. And he says, guys, this has been here all along. And even David's writings in the Psalms were pointing ahead to Jesus. In other words, Jesus isn't just some teacher. He didn't just do some miraculous things. He's not just a miracle worker. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah, the Savior we have been waiting for. And he quotes this. He says he's sitting at God's right hand. And to a Jew, that was always the position of authority with God, a co-regent, a co-ruler, to saying this person, Jesus, is equal to God. He's not some created being, lesser than. He's the one seated, enthroned in heaven. And notice this, key piece of this. He quotes Joel chapter 2, along with Acts 2. And then Acts 2, verse 33 says, now He, speaking of Jesus, is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us, just as you see and hear today. So who's the one pouring out the Holy Spirit? You can answer. Who's the one pouring out the Spirit here? It's Jesus. Okay, so he gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. Jesus is the one pouring out the Holy Spirit. Yet, when we look at Joel, we see in Joel chapter 2, verse 29, it says, in those days, this is God speaking, through Joel, I will pour out my Spirit even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. So hold on a second. So is Jesus the one pouring out the Spirit? Or wait, is Jesus the, the one? No, no. Don't miss this. Peter is making a very specific point here to his Jewish hearers. Jesus is and was the one that spoke through Joel saying, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And now in Acts, Peter's saying, yes, and that one, he is the one pouring out his Spirit, and you're seeing it happen right now. Wow. Not just a Galilean teacher. Jesus isn't just someone that's come as another rabbi. No, he is the eternal king forever from the line of David. He is the same God who has been speaking to us all along through the prophets. He is the Lord, the Messiah, and the resurrected Savior. And the crowd, reasonably, is stunned at these words. Wait a minute. So God came down. He came down and he met with us and he walked with us. And in, instead of listening to him, we, we murdered him? We, did, we murdered him? And that's where number three comes in this morning. The gospel words call for a response. It says in verse 37, Peter's words pierced their hearts. And they said to him and to the other apostles, 
brothers, what should we do? These gospel words, they, they pierced their hearts. There was this realization, you could even say a revelation, that we, I, did that to God? We spit in his face and we killed him and we made fun of him while he was dying? Now, in fairness, some of the people that are here listening to Peter were not there the day when Jesus was crucified. That's a key element to this. But some were. Some were part of the crowds. And Jesus says to them, you, y'all, nailed him to the cross. In other words, he's holding all of them responsible for this. And, consequently, all of us, everyone who's ever lived, on an even deeper realize in this moment, and the piercing of the heart shows this to us, that they're realizing, I did that to him. I, I put him there. My sin led to that horrible event. And there's this piercing of, I'm guilty. I'm found out. We know this because of their response. Now, have you ever been found out? We talked about this a little bit at our prep time. Have you ever been sat down in a terrible situation where somebody is on to you? And they say, hey, I need to talk to you about something. So is there something, uh, is there something you'd like to tell me? You ever had that one? Is there something you, some, some of you are freaked out right now. I'm not going to go all prophetic word on you. Sorry, name it things. But, uh, excuse me, sir, would you, uh, like, church shrinks by 50%. That moment where you just know the gig's up. Oh, no. What it? What I do? Oh, shoot. You're thinking of all the, I said, dude, who was I with? What I, the, the gig's up. If you've had that moment, you know there's a piercing of your heart that goes on. A remorse of a, I can't hide this. It's time to come clean. But that's the moment we're seeing right here. They know that they have been found out, guilty as charged. And notice what they don't say. The crowd doesn't yell back, no, we didn't. That wasn't our fault. I wasn't even here. They don't get defensive. They don't blame shift. That was those guys over there, and they're way worse than I am anyways, by the way. No, they say, what must we do? They know the gig's out. What, what, what do we have to do about this? And this, friends, is the most important question that any human will ever answer. What will you do with Jesus? And that's not just for people that don't yet follow Jesus. for every single one of us every day. What will you do with Jesus? It says in verse 40 that Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all of his listeners, save yourself from this crooked generation. See, there is a time for urging. Like, hey, don't just look at this and keep walking. In fact, I want to urge you right now a little bit. Can you give me permission to urge you a little bit? I mean, there's this point, you know, and lovingly the best thing I can do as a pastor sometimes is to urge you to look at something you may not want to look at. And the question really is, what will you do with Jesus? Because that is the, that is the question that separates the Christian faith from every other belief system or philosophy or religion is the question, what will you do with Jesus? 
In fact, if anyone's ever trying to talk you in or have a discussion about whatever their belief system is, it's like, well, who is Jesus and what is he about? That is the difference of all of them. Is he Satan's brother that had a better plan of salvation than Jesus did and they chose Jesus or whatever? Is he just a teacher or is he, you know, he's a good moral guy, he's a revolutionary? I mean, what will you do with him? Is he just a prophet, a healer, a teacher, a good guy, moral compass of some kind? Or is he, as what Peter's advocating, is he the king of kings? Is he the savior for all of us? Is he, as Paul says in Philippians 2, is he God who didn't cling to equality but actually humbled himself and submitted himself to a criminal's death on the cross in our place? Is he the God who lived a perfect life in your place, the life that you could never live so that righteousness could be attributed to you because you couldn't earn it? Is he a God that died the death you deserve so that he died instead of you dying so that you would experience eternal life because he was judged you could get free? Was he raised from eternal life to impart eternal life and power to you for eternity forevermore and for today to defeat the power of sin? How will you respond to that reality today and every day? And the key element to that, if I could go even more specifically, is do you believe that your sin actually nailed him to that cross? Or is that just the really other bad people that, you know, he did that for the super jacked up people, which I'm one of, by the way. Because that's the question. Do you believe your sin put him on the cross? And I get that. That's an intense thought to think about, but it's also the reality of the cross. It was, our sin is actually that brutal. It required that. Now, just stay with me for a second here. Because if you say, no, my sin didn't do that to Jesus. That was, you know, that was for other people. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. That was for my really bad sins, but you know, I, I, now I got it. No. If you say, no, your sins didn't put him there, then your sin was not paid by his blood, by his death. And thus, the balance is still due. The debt is still unpaid. And on the day of judgment, you will stand guilty before a righteous and holy God that judges sin. And it won't be because somehow you're uniquely evil and bad and terrible. It won't be because of that. It will be because in your pride, you rejected the offer of grace. In your pride, you said, no, I got this. I don't need you. I'll continue to be Lord of my life. You, you stay over there. That can be your option. You can say, no, that was not my sin that put Jesus there. Or you can say, yes. You can look at the cross and say, that was me that did that. that was, that's my sin up there, and he took that for me specifically. My sin was deserving of punishment, and Jesus took my punishment. He was treated as I deserve to be treated, so I could be treated how he deserves to be treated. You can personalize what Isaiah said in chapter 53. It was my weakness he carried. It was my sorrow that weighed him down. And I thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for my rebellion. He was crushed for my sins. He was beaten so I could be whole. He was whipped so I could be healed. There's only one right answer in those two options. And the answer is that was your sin and it was mine that put him on that cross, just as it was for everyone in the crowd that day. And if your heart is pierced, if there's a remorse to that, and you can say to Jesus, Jesus, my sin did that to you. That piercing immediately 
provides a way through for grace. That piercing is the pathway to experience the grace of God. Because he rushes in, and what he doesn't do is take your nose and rub it into that thing and say, that's right, and you put me on the cross, and you know what, gosh dang it. And that's the view many people have of God. If I ever admit that my sin did that, that's going to be his permission to, oh, that's, that's it, I knew it, You're, and now just, just remember how awful you were, and I died for you, and don't do that again. Don't do it again. Brothers and sisters, that is not the response of our father. The response of our father is Luke 15. When he sees his son is turned back, he sprints. And when he sprints, the, the son is covered in mud and dirt and been sleeping with pigs, and he wraps his arms around him. He embraces an unclean child and says, I love you. And then he puts the cloak on him, puts a ring on his finger, puts sandals on his feet and says, those are all of the markings in Middle Eastern culture of identity and inheritance and value and says, you're mine, I love you. That's how we respond when we confess our sin. And I've tasted that, friends. I know so many of you have as well. I continue to taste that. Every time Ray or one of the others lead and they read those words, Jesus, the friend of sinners. I'm like, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. That I continue to taste that even despite my ongoing selfishness and pride and idolatry and defensiveness, God doesn't come in to condemn me. He goes, Tim, I was condemned in your place. Walk free. I took those nails for you, Tim. I took those nails for you, friends, because I love you. There's a song that Natalie sang last week, and then it says, All my life you have been faithful. I'll try to sing it a little bit. All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Sing of the goodness of God. He's good to us. So, so good. And if your heart is pierced, Peter instructs the crowd, and it's to us as well. He says, if your heart is pure, if you repent of your sin, turn to be God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin. It's wiped clean. That's not the nose in the dirt. That's a, I know, let's go. Let me come in. And then, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that he's promised. And this promise is to you and your children and those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God calling people home. The promise to those whose hearts are pierced is this. If you repent of being Lord over your own life and you come to Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you will be forgiven. You will be cleansed. You will be filled. You will have the hope. You will never be forgotten, forsaken, removed. You will never be alone again. It's signed, sealed, delivered, saved, adopted, born, new, fresh. Off you go. And that is open to anyone. So if your response this morning is, that's me, and maybe it's your response for the hundredth or the thousandth time like it is for me every week, let's pray together.
And maybe just, you don't have to say it out loud, but just pray with me in in your heart. Just say to Jesus, Jesus, my sin put you there on that cross. You died the death I deserve so I could have eternal life forever. And Jesus, I receive your finished work for me. Help me surrender every area of my life to you. And fill me with your spirit to help me turn to you for life and not turn to anything else. Amen. I got a couple more thoughts. If you prayed that, know this. His words to you always and forever will not be words of condemnation. They will be gospel words of life. The better words. Gospel words of extravagant grace. It's kind of hard to believe. It's like, Jesus, you got a raw deal out of this, man. You died, you suffered, and you got me? And I like, trust you like 50% of the time and then maybe 80 on a good day. Like, that's what you got out of this? And we can start to tell ourselves, like, you know what? I, I don't know if I can believe that. How can God love me so much when my love is so, so fleeting? And there's a story I heard, and it paints this reality so perfectly. It's the story of Dennis the Menace. Dennis the Menace and his buddy, you know what they did. They would smash, you know, mailboxes and all those things. And Mr. Wilson always terrorizing him. And one day, Mrs. Wilson invites Dennis the Menace over and his buddy. And she sits him down at the table. She says, would you boys like some cookies? And they're like, yeah, sure. Want some cookies? So she bakes these fresh-baked chocolate chip cookies, and she puts them on the table, and they're eating, and she walks out of the room, and Dennis the Menace turns to his buddy, and he's like, he's like, why is she giving us these cookies? Like, doesn't she know we're bad kids? Like, and his friend goes, you dummy. She didn't give us these cookies because she thinks we're good. She gave us these cookies because she's good. Friends, that's the gospel. You think, I don't deserve grace like that. I don't deserve God would love me like that. I know. <laughs> this was never about us deserving it. It's about a God who says, I'm good. Let me love you. The reason he can love us that much is not because we're good. It's because he's good. So much that he was good in our place so that we can be treated with the goodness of God as if we're Christ. Standing clothed in his righteousness and his love. I hope you can receive that today. Let's pray in closing. Lord Jesus, thank you for your love. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And Jesus, there have never been more beautiful feet than yours. Beautiful feet that bore nails for our sins. What incredible love that you have. Jesus, you drank the cup of wrath for our sins so that we could drink the cup of the eternal covenant with you. That we could never be separated from you an eternal promise of faithfulness to us, Lord. All our lives you've been faithful. You've been so good. We just ask that you continue to show us that each and every day. 
And I thank you, we thank you that you put words in somebody's mouth at some point in our lives that we could have clarity in our confusion, that we could be pointed to you, that we can be given the grace to respond to your calling. And so we thank you for those people. And we thank you for the promise that will never run dry, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Lord, as we face ridicule, as we face mocking, attack, disdain for following you, Lord. May you give us love that you have for people to flow in and through us so that we might be a people here at Generation Church of Gospel Words. Lord, we love you because you loved us first.